Hello and welcome to Inside Briefing, the podcast from the Institute for Government. I'm Hannah White, I'm Deputy Director of the Institute and I'm making my debut in the presenter's chair for the next couple of weeks. Summer's supposed to be a quieter time in politics as ministers head off for the holiday and the news agenda drops a gear or two. Not this week. We'll be looking at how the government made such a mess of its exam grading system and what this tells us about the government's wider use of algorithms. And from the overnight ripping up of the exam grading system, we'll turn to the government's mid-pandemic plan to dismember Public Health England. Scapegoating or sensible reorganisation? And after all that, we'll try and recreate the thrill of the party conference season in this virtual studio, because social distancing rules mean that party conferences won't be taking place in their usual form this year. Instead, we're going to have a series of virtual get-togethers. How will that work? What will we miss if political parties can't hang out together for five days in overheated, overcrowded conference centres? And will we ever go back? I've got a great panel to discuss all of this. We've got Gavin Freegard, the IFG's data dom. Hi, Gavin. Hello, Hannah. Nick Timmins, IFG fellow and former public policy editor at the Financial Times. Welcome, Nick. Hi, good to be here. And I'm delighted that we're joined by Sonia Seder, Chief Leader Writer at The Observer. Hi, Sonia. Hi there. So let's begin with the exam results. There was absolutely no chance of a U-turn on the government's controversial exam grading system. So said Gavin Williamson, the Education Secretary, on Saturday. And then just 48 hours later, after a barrage of media and howls of protest from students across the country, Williamson U-turned. Students no longer have to accept grades produced by an algorithm and can instead use their teachers' predictions. Gavin, you're the data guru. Talk us through how the off-qual algorithm worked. How long have we got? (laughs) Um, (laughs) So in, in simple terms, what the algorithm did was to look at the historical grades within a particular subject at a particular school. It would then sort of zoom out and look at how that's related to different schools across the country, how prior attainment of students um, sort of worked across England as well. And then it sort of ran a number of predictions, looking at how it could map results for previous students, how it would map results for current students, to what extent you can match students to their prior attainment. Um, And that would be used to come up with the school's predicted grade distribution. So the sort of different um, grades, the number of people in those grades that you'd expect for that school in that subject. At that point, the teacher assessed grades are then overlaid with those predicted grades, as that gives you some rough grades to start working with. Those are then translated into rough marks for all of the students. Um, And that will help you find sort of students on the grade boundaries who in a normal year, do you remember those, um, might be expected to move up or down a grade depending on exactly where the boundaries were drawn. What then happens is that the grade boundaries are finally drawn and you end up with the final grades. Nice and simple. Nice and simple. So what do we think was wrong with that approach? Well, in a sense... um, everything went right. The algorithm uh, behaved exactly as it was predicted to. Um, And in fact, the Royal Statistical Society, the Education Select Committee and various DfE advisors predicted that there might be some issues that came from that. And those sort of revolve around a number of things. So the use of historical data, if you had a high-performing student in an underperforming school, or if you had a school whose performance had improved rapidly over the last few years, they might be disadvantaged by the use of historical data. 
There's also the issue of very small class sizes. Now, if you had a class of five students or fewer, the teacher assessed grade would be used, not the algorithmic one. If you had a class of between five and 15, more weight would be given to the teacher assessed grade. And of course, private schools tend to have smaller class sizes. So again, there's some uh, sort of disadvantage, some bias um, coming into the system there. And what do you think the implications are of what's gone wrong for the government's wider use of algorithms? Because you've written for us this week um, a piece explaining that actually it's more widespread than we might think. Yes, that's right. And um, government tends to use algorithms in, in a number of different areas. It's sort of used in criminal justice. It's been used to decide sort of welfare payments at a local level, even in predicting where um, children's social care interventions might be necessary. HMRC's used it uh, when it comes to sort of detecting uh, fraud. Um, various regulators also use it to target particular sites for inspection. So algorithms can be incredibly helpful, as can the wider use of future technology, artificial intelligence, for instance, which tends to to rely uh, quite heavily on algorithms and data. I think what this should mean is that we should remember that the algorithms are not to blame. Uh, They are built by humans. They are designed by humans. Humans are the ones who should be mitigating the biases from the start and understanding uh, the consequences of using some of these systems. Again, this is very well known in the sort of data ethics community. Various journalists, various others have been talking about serious problems with algorithmic bias for many, many years. In fact, the government's own data ethics framework has quite an extensive section um, on trying to avoid bias. I think what incidents like this risk are putting people off the use of algorithms and future technology, which could be very improving for governments altogether. These sorts of technologies and techniques can lead to better decisions. They can lead to more accurate decisions. They can lead to quicker decisions. But if all we see are fiascos like what we've seen over the last week, that is going to cause the public to lose trust. And it's going to be much, much, much more difficult for government to be able to deploy algorithms and other technology in a beneficial way. Nick, if we zoom out from the algorithm here, what, in your view, went wrong more broadly within government for us to end up where we are now? Well, I I actually have um, enormous sympathy for kind of everyone involved in this. I even have a bit of sympathy for Gavin Williamson. I mean, for the pupils, the teachers, Ofqual and him. Because I don't think it's hindsight to say that as soon as the exams were cancelled, it was clear there was going to be no right way of getting to a solution. You know, we've ended up with teacher predicted grades. Well, you know, I know from, I'm sure we all know from our own experience that they're not always that accurate. I got results that were better or worse than I was predicted way back in the years when I was at school. And the government was clearly very worried about grade inflation uh, and that teachers' predictions would be higher than the reality if they had sat the exams. Um, now, ironically, this would have been less of a problem in the days before Ofsted and school league tables. But, of course, at the moment, you know, school results play into school rankings. So consciously or unconsciously, there is an incentive for teachers to be optimistic when predicting grades, and the government was clearly very worried about that. So it tried to come up with this algorithm that solved the problem. But it seems to me it was obvious it was never going to solve the problem in the sense that you know, in, in a situation like this, it gets to a kind of good average result. But children are not good averages. They're individuals. And some of them will have done better in their exams or worse than exams than expected. So that the government was in a terrible bind in the sense that there was no right answer to this. 
Uh, my own view is, and I think this applies to a lot of the handling of COVID as well, is they'd have, been much, they'd have done much better to be very honest at the beginning and say there is not going to be a right answer to this. We are going to do our best and our best is going to be like this and we accept that there will be some, you know, that there will be some rough justice in this. Sonia, just picking up on that that point that, that Nick made about the, the league tables and, and how what's happened this year fits in the system of, of the way we run exams in, in this country at all. You wrote a piece this week arguing that actually there's there's a much bigger problem with the way we, we use exams and, and how that entrenches elite, elitism in the country. Yeah, I think that's right. And what I wanted to do was sort of take a step back and ask the question, well, given that young people weren't able to take exams, why was it so important that we still found a way of assigning them grades, even though, you know, it comes with all of the issues uh, that Nick uh, has, has just uh, talked about? And, um, you know, the, the, the reason why it, we sort of um, had to produce these grades, it's not so much for the league tables this year at schools, because I think actually, you know, the government could have accepted that, that one year we're not going to be able to rank schools. It's really because in our university system, so much emphasis is put on what you scored in your A-levels. And to me, it seems a massive anomaly of our education system that pre-18, we shun selection and academic experts um, have done lots of research that suggests actually sorting young people into different institutions based on their ability is very bad for the education system as a whole because it doesn't do much for high ability students but it really has an impact a downwards impact on the performance of lower ability students yet suddenly when young people turn 18 we sort of turn that assumption on its head and put it on steroids and we have this incredibly academically selective university system where literally if you miss out on a grade or if you if you if you go if you go down two grades that could completely transform which university you go to. But actually, if you take a step back, I, I think it's worth asking the bigger question, which is why, if you get BBB in, uh, in your A-levels instead of BCC, why do we place this emphasis on saying, well, those two young people shouldn't be studying together at the same institution on the same course? Why do we have this academically stratified system? And I think when you start to ask those questions, it, you know, there aren't really any good answers apart from the fact that this is the way we've always done things. And actually, the way we do things at the moment, what it allows is the very most selective universities at the top. They select the uh, students with the highest performing A-level grades. Surprise, surprise, those students go on to do uh, best generally in the labour market because employers tend to use which university you went to as a sort of shorthand for how good you might be at a job. Um, and then, you know, the most selective universities sort of get to sort of take all the credit for it. But I think we'd have a better university system, actually, if there was, was more mixing of abilities. And I think that would really undermine some of the elitism and classism of our system as well because a very academically stratified higher education system equals a very socially stratified education system because we know that A-level performance is so heavily related uh, to your social background and your parents' education level. And isn't it the case now that the government's U-turn has, for the same reasons, just essentially shifted the problem onto the universities because they are stratified in the way you describe most students will, will want to opt for their, you know, first choice, which might leave a whole set of institutions who might have picked up um, students who were, you know, good, but didn't quite make the, the, the grades in the end. 
who would have gone to their second choice very happily, those institutions might not have enough students um, at all. Yes, that's absolutely right. So the game when you're going to university is absolutely to get into the highest, for a lot of young people, not all, but many young people, it's to get into the most selective institution you can, the highest kind of uh, grade sort of requirement that you can, because that sends a signal to employers that you're, you know, uh, a sort of Russell Group student perhaps rather than a post-1992 student but the problem that this has led to is that as you say um, because of the grade inflation because you've got many more students meeting their uh, conditional offers than you would in a normal year the most selective universities are now officially oversubscribed so they've made too many offers because um, they always make offers expecting that some young people won't meet them those young people all want to go to their first choice university completely understandably. It's the way that our system is, is geared up to work. It's the way they are incentivized to behave. And then that leaves middle and lower uh, tier universities. Some of them are going to have a problem in the sense that they've got empty places to fill. So it's two problems, really. Now, I have less sympathy with Gavin Williamson than Nick. Um, there was no perfect way of doing this, but the government picked a terrible way of doing it because they were lobbied in the run up to it. There were lots of people saying, look, if you're going to use an algorithm you need to get these results to schools much earlier before they're published so schools can appeal the anomalies and I think that they could have sort of headed off some of this critique that way but once they got themselves in this position and they'd done the u-turn um, they really needed to work with universities to come up with a solution to this and there are solutions that exist you could financially incentivize young people some young people to defer for a year for example you could um, you could have worked with universities to prioritize young people from disadvantaged backgrounds if they've um, in terms of young people who've met the grades so there are all sorts of solutions that aren't perfect but would have been out there but instead all the government's done is it's just made this u-turn and then literally shoved the problem onto universities. The university sectors isn't really um, coordinated enough uh, to sort this out on their own. There were funding issues. It really needed government leading from the front on this and to play a role. And they've handled it, I think, completely incompetently and they've just stored up another problem in, so, in what they think is solving one problem. It certainly doesn't seem like it's an issue that's going to go away and there's a lot more unforeseen circumstances further down the track. I think we're going to move on now to talk about coronavirus and the role of Public Health England. Matt Hancock, the Health Secretary, has implicitly, at least, uh, suggested that it was the failings of Public Health England which were responsible for much of many of the missteps um, which have taken place on the government's response to coronavirus. And this week he gave a speech confirming that Public Health England would be replaced by a new National Institute for Health Protection. Nick, you've written extensively about the NHS and health reform. Can you tell us a little bit about the history and how Public Health England got to where it is now? Uh, sure. Um, well, prior to 2013 and Andrew Lanz's famous Healthcare Act, uh, there was a separate agency called the Health Protection Agency, uh, which worried about pandemics, you know, Novichok, biological terrorism, all that sort of stuff. And it was focused solely on that. Uh, and as part of the 2013 reforms, it was merged into what became Public Health England, which took on a lot of the public health work that the department normally did. So the, the distinction here is between health prevention, which is worrying about pandemics and the like, and health improvement, which is research on tackling childhood obesity, you know, all, all the sort of measures we need to improve the long-term health of the nation. And these are two mildly overlapping but separate roles. Um, 
And one suspects that there may have been a loss of focus on the health prevention stuff. It's, it's very If you look at the marching orders that uh, the health protection, uh, the, the Public Health England was given back in March 2019, there's a great long list of things they should do around health improvement. Uh, and apart from the need to get on with building a new lab, there's no mention about health prevention at all in this letter. So it's clear that the chief focus of PHE was understandably ministers' interests and not health protection. So you get a sense that there may have been a loss of focus there. Um, And that may, well, not have helped. And at the same time, the health improvement bit of... uh, was moved out of the NHS and into local government, which in itself may have been a perfectly good thing to do, but it turns out slightly at the wrong time because it coincided with austerity... Uh, so spending not just on the public health element of local government, but all sorts of bits of local government, which might have helped in the pandemic, all got cut. So and you don't think austerity would have affected that if it hadn't been moved into local government? Uh, no, I don't, because I think it's perfectly true that, you know, every arm's length agency had, apart from NHS England, had their, have had their budget cut over this period. Uh, and the NHS is itself is not always good at protecting anything that isn't immediate patient treatment. So it's quite likely this budget would have got cut as well had nothing changed. Uh, But the fact is that the combination of the structural reorganisation both ways, both nationally and locally, probably did not help. And what's Public Health England being blamed for now? And in your view, is it is it fair of ministers to do that? I think, I mean, you know, there is a suspicion it's being scapegoated. I, I just think the jury is out. Uh, there were clearly a bunch of decisions taken quite early on around testing and tracing that uh, some people think should have gone very differently. But it's utterly unclear precisely who took those decisions, where and when, whether it's ministers, what advice they got. And I don't think we'll get a clear answer to that until we have the public inquiry. So I think it's a, it, it, it's a fair, it's fair to say if Public Health England failed, as opposed to we're absolutely sure it did. And what do you think of the timing of this decision uh, that the government's taken to to make these changes now? And and how easy will this reorganisation that they're proposing be to to give effect to right now? Well, I think in some ways it's quite extraordinary. I mean, it's rebuilding the plane in mid-flight. And as we all know, rebuilding a plane in mid-flight is a surefire guaranteed way to achieve success. Uh, It's still not clear precisely what is going on. I mean, it appears to start with unified leadership for the biosecurity centre, the test and trace, and the health protection bit of public health England, which in a sense makes sense. It's clear it's clear that things need to be sorted out. But at the same time, Hancock said he intends to have the new institution up and running by next April. So there's going to be structural reorganisation going on at the same time as we are trying to tackle what we fear will be another wave of, of coronavirus. So the timing seems quite extraordinary, really. I mean, to do to do both at the same time seems quite extraordinary. You could ask another question, which is it a good idea to try and, in the longer run, to try and reorganise the way we do health protection? And I would say yes, as long as the reorganisation is done properly. Uh, I mean, one of the differences between the Health Protection Agency and Public Health England is HPA was a sort of proper arm's length body further away from government, more independence, obviously ultimately answerable to ministers, but more independence. Public Health England is an executive agency of the Department of Health. In other words, it's subject to ministerial direction. So you have to ask the question, well, if it's true that it failed early on, you know, given it was subject to ministerial direction, 
Why did that happen? Surely ministers must carry some responsibility for that. Sonia, from what you've seen watching this, do you think that this reorganisation which is, is being proposed is going to make a difference to the way the government handles the next phase of the pandemic, whether, whether it's the second wave or an extension of the first wave? I'm very sceptical and I think it's because it's a reorganisation that's sort of happening for the wrong reasons and you know we've seen a lot of attempts by this government rather to fess up to the fact that they've made mistakes say this was a really difficult situation um, we haven't got everything absolutely everything right and here are some of the mistakes that we've made and here's what we're going to do differently. I don't think we've seen enough of that from this government I think we've seen ministers really try and shift the blame and we've seen that actually over the education stuff Gavin Williamson has tried to blame Ofqual when really, I mean, the buck stops with him. People were warning about the potential unfairnesses of this algorithm weeks ago. I think we're saying, seeing the same here. You know, ministers are really trying to push the blame onto public health England for some of the failings that we saw early on. And I just don't think you get good reorganisations out of this sort of politics. And I think, you know, I agree with Nick that perhaps a reorganisation may be merited, but you've got to be so careful how you do it. And if I would say 90% of, of reorganisations of institutions in politics, they're done for the wrong reasons and they either don't achieve anything or they make things worse. And I think you can see that if you look at, for example, the education system and the reorganisations of schools and academisation, very unclear what that's achieved. If you look at the NHS, massive reorganisation uh, back in 2011, uh, the land fee reforms, again, what on earth was that trying to achieve? And it was very expensive and I don't think it's achieved anything at all apart from distracting people from the real business of public service reform which is improving the quality of services and I suspect I'm afraid that we're going to see exactly the same here and I think there are real questions about the sort of new agency um, that, that's being created. Um, Dido Harding has been uh, made interim chair and there's been a lot of negative um, publicity about her, some of it's fair, some of it less fair I think but there are questions to be asked. She's already um, chairing and responsible for delivering uh, test and trace. That is a huge, huge government project. I don't, you know, getting that right is a difficult, complex, mammoth task. Why put, do a massive reorganisation in the middle of a pandemic and put the same person in charge of this new agency as well, or, or, or I should be more accurate, she's going to be chairing this agency. So I just, uh, you know, I, I, I'm very sceptical. I think it's a reorganisation that's happening for the wrong reasons, for political reasons, in order to shift the blame. And from my, in my experience, you don't get good outcomes from those sorts of motivations. The Institute's done quite a lot of work on what we very geekily call machinery of government change. And I think, you know, it is universally the case that that it's very distracting for the, the people involved in whichever organisations are, are being uh, reorganised at the time. Um, and so it's not exactly what we necessarily want people to be thinking about, whether their jobs are going to exist or be in a different form. We'll move on now, I think, um, from, from public health, though, to, to party politics which has indeed been a feature of our, of our earlier discussion, but to focus on the party conferences, which have been completely turned on their head this year by COVID-19. Normally, MPs would return to Parliament for a few weeks in September before heading off to their conferences, and then Parliament would go into recess for another three weeks. This year, politicians, lobbyists, journalists and party members will be denied the dubious pleasures of late nights in conference centres and a diet of warm white wine and dubious-looking canapes. But the conferences are sort of going ahead. Gavin, can you can you enlighten us about what's happening? So um, all three of the main parties are 
pushing ahead with some sort of online offering. Now, unlike in previous years, where you tend to get three weeks off from Parliament as part of a conference recess, um, Parliament will still be sitting, as far as we know, um, during that period. Um, but Labour, the Lib Dems and the Conservatives will be holding some sort of online event. Now, it's slightly different across the three of them, which in part reflects the fact that the conferences themselves, if they were happening in person, are also slightly different. If you go to Lib Dems or if you go to Labour, the kind of beating heart of the conference tends to be the conference hall, not just for speeches by politicians, but also debates, delegates voting, so on and so forth. Conservative Party conferences are completely different. You don't have that um, in the conference hall, and actually most of the energy is, is sort of around the fringe. So the Conservatives um, have got sort of online offering where they'll have some keynote speeches and uh, there'll also be the opportunity for organisations like the Institute for Government uh, to host the sort of fringe discussions on various um, policy areas and various subjects that we, that we would normally do in person. The Lib Dems, uh, for their online platform, are basically replicating as much of their conference as they possibly can, not just the discussions and the exhibitions, but also, it seems, the sort of voting um, and policy debates as well. Whereas Labour seems to have gone for something slightly um, different, which I think has been called um, Labour Connected, which, again, will have some of those debates, those discussions, those fringe events, the kind of exhibition sort of thing that you, you would get if you were wandering around a conference hall. But it doesn't seem like that they'll, they'll be taking votes um, as they normally would on the conference floor. Sonia, do you normally go to party conference? What do you think the, the point is of them? Will you, will you miss them? Um, I do normally go. I suppose there are certain aspects of it that I will miss. So it's always a good opportunity. I mean, and the main reason that I think a lot of people go, there's obviously the business of the um, of what goes on on the sort of floor of the conference, and you know, very important things get decided. The main reason, sort of, journalists like me go is to sort of pick up on the stories and sort of see who's up and who's down. Um, and then a lot of people go just kind of for the networking opportunity, and that's where you get a lot of businesses. There, I think it's also important to say they also make a lot of money. Uh, for the parties and um, you know I think particularly the Labour Party will find it difficult not having this big annual source of revenue that it has um, every year Um, so yeah there there are certain things about it I'll miss but I think you know there'll there'll still be sort of stories coming out of um, those weeks I did get an email uh, over the summer inviting me to a virtual reception at Labour Party conference and I just thought oh my goodness I can't think of anything worse uh, when you think about an in-person reception you know at party conference it's sort of you know cheap what cheap war wine and uh, you know a couple of canapes in the corner of the room and lots of kind of uh, lengthy speeches and the idea of sort of doing that in your own front room over Zoom just does not appeal at all so I think there is an extent to which um, the political parties probably just need to let go of the fact that it, it's not happening in the in the same format and um, try and do something a lot more minimal. Um, but I, I don't think British politics is, is losing out on a huge amount as a result of not running uh, the conference season this year in, in the same way. So the idea of supplying your own warm white wine doesn't seem terribly attractive, does it? No. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Nick, what do you think the, the conferences can achieve this year? Uh, I would have thought not a great deal, to be honest. Um, I mean, I went to them on and off for 30 years, I suppose, most of them. Uh, and I used to rather enjoy them because uh, I was a political correspondent for a period in the 90s for the Thatcher Rise of Blair. And I had a love-hate relationship with the job in the sense that Westminster's upside down. Everything's off the record until it's on the record, which is the opposite of normal reporting. 
But at party conferences, there's no place to hide. You know, the fringe is there, the platform is there, uh, and good stories come out of it from the reporter's, reporter's point of view. But also, as a reporter, you do get a sense of the mood of the party, you know, whether the party is up or down, whether it's feeling strong. Now, you won't get that from the virtual conferences we have now. I mean, it just won't be the same. So I suspect their impact this year will be pretty minimal. So it sounds like, at least from a journalist's point of view, they'll be hoping that uh, uh, the conferences are back in their normal form next year. And that's the end of this week's Inside Briefing. My huge thanks to Gavin Freegard, Nick Timmins and Sonia Soda, and thanks to you all for listening at home. If you want to hear more IFG work and discussions, then please do check out our sister podcast, IFG Live. You can listen at Apple Podcasts, Acast, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And do leave us a review. We'll take whatever grade you give us, but please use a generous algorithm. You can find all our podcasts, all our events, and all of our work at our website. See you next week when we'll be back for a back-to-school Brexit special. <laughs>